And welcome to Sunday Social, wherever you are in New Zealand, or maybe you're listening in 10 years' time on a podcast from an orbiting satellite. I hope, I hope you've found some respite from the heat today. I don't mean to brag, but it's 19 degrees or so here in the heart of the News Hub. And... The duty, the duty, I was going to say the pain, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick it back. The duty of uh, working on a Sunday night and a long weekend is more, more than compensated for by the glorious, glorious aircon. Welcome to the show, show number 196, closing in on the big 200. I'd love you to be part of the show. Text me, 3920, that'll up on the screen in front of me. You can tweet me at Vaughan Davis. Some people already are, which is rather nice. And uh, I will do my very best to uh, to respond to those tweets in real time. Later on, Mr. Julian Waters is in the house with the apps of the week. A weird little website for anyone who's into, mm, I don't know, sci-fi fantasy crossed with cryptic crosswords. So hang about if you're into that. And a bit of a lowdown, uh, and we've begun to get into the habit of sort of demystifying and explaining buzzwords, a bit of a lowdown on the sharing economy. And no, that's that's not the economy of getting your sheep shorn, the sharing economy. First though, a book in them, but most of us go through life without that book ever quite coming out. These days, while it can be a bit harder to find a printed book in your neighbourhood bookshop, if you even have one, digital publishing plus online retailers like Amazon are making it easier than ever for authors to turn their ideas into reality. Or are they? Kirsten McKenzie is an Auckland author who's just done that and had three books published so far in the last few years with another two on the way. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Vaughan. First up, for people who have not read your books, and I'm sure there's the odd one or two um, stragglers out there, just give give me an an overview of your over. Started out writing historical fiction and had two books published through... Well, we can go into who who published it. And, well, let's just talk about the books. Oh, let's right, talk about good. the books. So two books published, historical fiction, technically time slip. And then I took a break from the deep research required for that and wrote a horror. So if I, if I were an author trying to uh, maximise my radio exposure, I'd probably name the books. Oh, good idea, good idea. I'm so, not going to tell you how to do your job. No, no, very good. Uh, so the first book was published in 2015, and that was called 15 Postcards, set uh, New Zealand, England, and the hill country stations of India, and starts in modern day, slips back to the 1860s, back to modern day, revolving around a girl who owns an antique shop, which is my background. Not that I own an antique shop anymore, but uh, based around the the antiques that came into the shop and out again. And then went on to write a sequel, thanks to my publisher's enthusiasm. That was called The Last Letter. And now I'm contracted to write the third sequel in that series called Telegram Home, which will come out 
later this year. So you've written these time slip, which is not not a not an expression I'd heard before, but maybe that's maybe that maybe it's more of a TV genre as well as a novel mm. genre. Don't know. I'm happy for it to be a TV genre. Well, one day, uh, but also horror. Tell me about the the, the horror novels. Well, I, I think some of your listeners will be familiar with Ant Timpson. Uh, and he ran, about four years ago, he ran a competition called Make My Horror Movie. And I submitted a, uh, an idea to that, made it into the top 13. Of course, not anywhere near far enough to the, win it. The, the one winner, yep. <laughs> and, uh, so that was, that was a crowdsourced competition where people came up with ideas for horror movies and one got made, And right? one got made, that's yeah. right. Uh, so then that idea sort of sat on my computer for the past four years. And after writing my first two books... I thought that I could turn that one into a into a novel, and so in the space of eight months, the book of the movie that didn't get made. That is, that's a great tagline. Yeah. So, wrote, painted, and um, that took me eight months, and that came out in uh, end of June two thousand and seventeen. Made it into number one in the Australian horror charts, and only number two in Canada and the UK. So there's room for improvement. There really is. So on the one hand, you're writing historical fiction. On the other hand, you're writing horror. What's the difference in your, in your approach between these, these two genres? And is it a bit sort of hard to juggle two voices or two styles of writing? My writing's essentially coming from the same point, which is a love of everything old. So Painted was based on old uh, artwork in an old house filled with old antiques, mm. funnily enough. Uh, 15 postcards in the last letter are steeped in history where those antiques are new. So I found that part easy. The, the research for the uh, researching the stuff, the stuff in the books is easy. It's just then researching how somebody would get around. And so researching for uh, historical fiction is hard. So you can spend two hours down an internet rabbit hole researching what was the carriage technically called that they travelled in from their house to their club. Well, that, that's a lot of time to find that out. But on the other hand, who's going to know if you get it wrong? Oh, trust me, they know. Or do they? I don't know if, if you've read the last letter. I'm assuming you have. Let, let, let's just continue on that, <laughs> on, 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 that, on that basis, shall we? But uh, there is a spitfire in there, which I know you'll be interested in. Mm-hmm. And so I had originally written that the Spitfire was made of um, aluminum, which it's not. Do you know what it's made of? I was going to say dural. Well done, yes. So yeah. everyone, everyone knows. Everyone that. knew that. So if you had, um, if you had read that, which of course you have, you would have picked up if I'd got it wrong, which I didn't get it wrong, thanks to uh, Lorna Sabritsky's husband. And, and, and indeed, possibly your husband, who's, who, like me, is a bit of an aviation buff. Yes, no, the Spitfire is in the book purely because of Fletcher. Look at that. Tell me how you came to be an author, because every, everyone has these... Well, not everyone, but many of us have these dreams, and many of us, you know, plug away in our, in our day jobs and, and never quite turn that dream into reality. So tell me about the journey for you, where, where you came from, the, you know, the job you used to do, to, to where you are now. I uh, started out life as a customs officer, mm-hmm. uh, fighting international crime. Loved it. I'm really lucky to be able to say that I loved my so, job. So by fighting international crime, you mean that, that one time I, I left an apple in my bag? Oh, no, that's... Oh, no, that's, immig- that's, that's, that, uh, that's biosecurity. Biosecurity. No, no, no. Uh, fighting oh, national... you mean the one time I didn't declare that computer I'm, I bought overseas. I'm talking about drugs and porn and um, necrophilia and all of that sort of thing. Necrophilia? 
it's against the law. Well, I know it's against the law, but I'm just trying to think how New Zealand Customs might have had a role in that. Maybe we shouldn't discuss that on, in this particular interview, but it might be a whole other one. So there you were. So there I was there a, you customs were officer. a customs officer. Then nothing, I, um, nothing to declare, officer. No, nothing to declare. Then I did some procreation, so I didn't go back to my job. You did some what? <laughs> I had children. Oh, okay. Yes, I, I have heard the word. Now that I, now that I, I've never I've never heard it in conversation. And uh, then my my father died unexpectedly. So my brother and I both took over the family business, which is Antique Alley on Dominion Road, in order to make sure Mum had an income. And that was me for the next ten years, working in an antique shop. And for the second time round, I loved it. I loved working in the antique shop and helping people find that missing bit of crockery or you know, buying things and, and apart from um, a couple of armed robberies um, work was pretty good but one slow day at work I decided I was going to write a book based on of all things a crown Lynn beehive mixing bowl as you do because that, that's you know if, if you're running one of those shops that's the difference between just a piece of junk and something of value is the story around it that's and behind exactly right. it right yeah I mean one of the saddest stories at work was a lady came in to sell some bits and pieces and one of them was a uh, a christening set and it, it had a, a name on it i'm not going to say the name on air and i said to her i said oh is this your name and she said no no that's my daughter's name she's just died and there was an older woman and that was really sad and that was around the time that i my, my father had collected postcards and we'd just bought a postcard collection of um old New Zealand real photo postcards, which are quite valuable, so don't throw those out, people. Mm -hmm. um, sell them to your local antique dealer. And so uh, the story started, you know, building in my mind, and I said to my, my brother, my little brother, um, oh, I'm going to write a book. And he said, you never finish anything. And I was like, well... Red rag to a bull. Here we go. Um, and I thought, well, this publishing thing, um, how hard can it be? I I'll tell you what, I'll put... Um, I put a bit of New Zealand in there, so that'll help me find a New Zealand publisher. Um, I don't know how many New Zealand publishers you know of, but there's very, very few of them, and so mm -hmm. it didn't work. And uh, I was a bit surprised. What, what do you mean it didn't work? So tell me what that means. Well, it means that if you go and approach the two New Zealand publishers that I can think of off the top of my head, other than um, Victoria University Publishing, um, you're very unlikely to be traditionally published in New Zealand. So I had... I, I was exceptionally lucky. I had five rejections from the two New Zealand publishers. So, so at this point, had you written the entire oh, yes. book? I'd written it apart from the last sort of chapter, but essentially it was finished. And so then I started pitching to publishers like you, like you, they tell you to do in all the how to publish a book, all those books, you know, publishing for dummies. You know, you start pitching, you write a cover letter, a query letter, and you, and you send it out, your first three chapters, send it out, and wait for the rejection letters. New Zealand rejected me, Australia rejected me, and then a publisher in the UK um, replied and said, we love it, can we read the whole thing? Mm -hmm. Bearing in mind I haven't quite finished it. I wrote back and said, uh -huh. give me a week to um, tidy it up for you. And so that was a week of 1am going to bed, finished it, sent it. They wrote back, said, we want to publish you. I rang uh, another New Zealand author that I'm friendly with, uh, Andrine Lowe, and said, what do I do? And she said, sign the contract. So I did. And, and, and there you are. So, so winding the clock back just a tiny bit, time slipping, if you will. Oh, yes. How long did it take you to, from the, you know, the Crownland pottery moment to having finished writing the book? How, how, how no, long the did it take? Book, so 15 postcards took uh, 
months, 18 months to write. Mm-hmm. The last letter took a year to write. Painted took eight months to write from woe to publish. The trend is good. Yes, it is good. And I'm contracted to deliver Telegram Home by 1st of August. And I've written about 700 words. So a bit of work to do. Crikey, Dick. So you got an agreement with the publisher. You sent them uh, the draft, I guess, yes. of, of your book. What happens yes. next? Uh, so so this, is tradi- this is traditional publishing. So I sent them... Sent them the draft. The draft. They uh, started editing it. So actually, my editor lives in Australia, um, and we toed and froed. Basically, word track changes that went went on for a couple of months. He would oh, come I, back. I hate word track changes, even in a five-page document, <laughs> but in a four-hundred-page book. Oh uh, my God! Or yeah. do you do it chapter by chapter? Ah uh, no, we do it book by book. Oh. And so that went on for a couple of months. They came back with the um, covers. I ghastly said no to the first cover. And then um, they came back with the second one and, and I sort of was told that that's what is acceptable on Amazon and so that's what you will accept. So I accepted it. Um, by the time I came around to the second book, I was a little bit more au fait with Amazon and online publishers and how everything looks on the internet. And, the, and how small your cover is and, so, and how attractive it needs to be. So you, you wrote the book, you got rejected, you got accepted, they published the book and it went up on Amazon. After the break, I want to talk to you about um, you know, what happened after that, how you go from you know, writing a book, publishing a book, to actually getting it sold back soon. Welcome back to Sunday Social. I'm Vaughan Davis talking to author Kirsten McKenzie. Welcome back, Kirsten. Thank you. Before the break, we talked about the uh, the journey from uh, being a customs officer to running an antique shop to deciding you're going to write a book and it's published. It's up on Amazon. What happens next? I don't know if I would have started this journey if I knew what was going to happen next. Oh, that's quite dramatic. So before I before I was a customs officer, I went off to uni to do um, computer programming. I lasted a year because I didn't want to sit in front of a computer for the rest of my life. Ha-ha! <laughs> joke's on you. So, <laughs> the joke is hugely on me, because now I sit in front of a computer every day. When I'm not in front of my computer, I'm on my phone. And when I'm not on my phone, I'm reading books about being on my computer. So as an author on Amazon, and for, the, for 15 postcards and the last letter, my publisher does all the work. So they do... They did all the loading onto Amazon, onto Kobo, onto iTunes, onto every other platform in the world, um, Barnes and Noble and Waterstones and all those bookshops there. So that's all, that's all my publisher does all that. That's about all your publisher does these days. So as an author... the mechanics, if well, you like. Yeah, if you like. You as the author then are primarily responsible for all your own promotion. So, for example, when I signed my publishing contract, they wanted to know who in the media did I know, for mm-hmm. example. And they're really only going to take on authors that have a platform. And when I say platform, I don't mean um, a wooden platform that you build without resource consent on the side of your house. They mean, do you have a Twitter platform, a Facebook platform? Are you on Instagram? Are you on Pinterest? How many followers have you got? So, in my publishing contract, they wanted to tell me to know my numbers. Um, and I was fortunate that I had joined Twitter in the early, early days when everyone was nice to each other. So I was okay on the, the Twitter platform and I was, I've always been on Facebook. I love Facebook. And so I was okay over there. Uh, so yeah, so now I spend my days on Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram, Pinterest, even Google Plus. I don't even still, <laughs> still. I'm the only person there. It feels like. Um, and what else is there? Oh, there's LinkedIn and there's oh, uh, BookBub and InstaFreebie and my blog and my website. And then I do a little bit of writing on the side. So all sorts of places. So you're very, very busy on the online self-promotion. But the, winding back again to that moment, though, that, that day, there would have been a day when you went onto Amazon, oh, searched yes. your own book, and there it was. And what happened next? Uh, well, there it was. It's sitting on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk and Amazon.India. And that's something that people don't realise. Amazon is this behemoth of a company but it's not as integrated as most software programmers would hope. It's you, If you want to see how your book's doing anywhere in the world, you have to go onto every single one of those individual platforms. So where was your first sale? Which one, which one well, of those platforms? .co.uk. And in fact, um, 15 Postcards has been sitting at number 20, number 14, number 12, number 20 on um, Amazon UK since um, actually May last year. It had a slow start and then it just skyrocketed for some reason and it's just sat up there the whole time. And is it entirely electronic or physical also? Uh, no, you can get paperbacks and hard copies. And and how, do, how does that how does, how does that split uh, work? Uh, honestly, I've um, there's probably the number of people in this building is the number of paperbacks I've sold um, but in terms of ebooks, well that pays for my lunches out. So the the ebook the you know the digital download is far and away the most hugely, uh, hugely. And, and 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 what do, what do I what do I pay for one of your books if if I'm on if you know, Amazon on, if you're on Amazon.com and you want a digital download of fifteen postcards it'll cost you ninety nine cents mm -hmm. US or ninety nine p and then if you want to buy the next book in the sequel here's the here's the key or the trick to making money it's uh, three dollars fifty ah because you've got them hooked now got them hooked you've got them hooked okay. And then when the third book comes out later this year, it might be even a dollar more expensive. Crikey, Dick. So that 99 cents, if, if, we, if we treat that 99 cents as a, as a bit of a pie chart, where does the 99 cents go? I, okay, so here's the... Um, this, is, this is why you don't go through a publisher. I get 25% of the net profit on that 99 cents. Oh, and that is by no means the same as 25% of the 99 cents. Uh, so. By no means the same, no. And how much does Amazon get of the ninety nine cents? I I I couldn't I couldn't tell you from how much they get for those ones, but I can tell you for uh, if you were to self publish, which is a whole it's another conversation that I'm sure we're about to have. If you were to self publish, independently publish, and you loaded your book on for ninety nine cents, you would get thirty percent. You as you as the as the author would as get thirty percent. But if you thirty percent. <gasps> But if you sell your books for over $2.99, you get 70%. Right, okay. So there's a fixed cost that Amazon has to, mm, yeah. technically has to carry. No bleeding hearts for Jeff Bezos, necessarily. No. So that, that's, that's, the, uh, that, that's the path you took to publication. The books have been fairly successful. But t tell me about, the, tell me about the, 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 the growth in popularity and, and the, the, the parts of the world in which these books have been successful. Because that, that wasn't entirely predictable either, was it? No. So um, everyone thinks Amazon's the be-all and end-all, but not if you live in Canada. If you live in Canada, you buy your books through Kobo. You don't buy them through Amazon. Who knew? I didn't know. So um, my books are all on Kobo because that's where Canadians do their reading. If you live in India, um, 
most publishers price their books far too high for the Indian market, which is something Joanna Penn talks about. Uh, she runs a podcast called The Creative Pen, and if you're an author, you must listen to her. Mm-hmm. She's a, a requirement. Um, but they, they use a platform called Inkterra. So when you need your books to be on that platform. Um, and, and they're probably one of the largest English language reading markets in the world. They are the largest English reading countries in the world, bigger than the UK. So mm. a, lot of, a lot of authors just focus on the US um, and then maybe the UK. But you're, there's India. I mean, they're, they're very well educated and they read a lot. And when I was in India last year, every tiny small train station and tiny small village had bookshops. Every, every single one. Which, which puts them some, somewhat ahead of uh, every the situation other country in the world. <laughs> here, here in New Zealand. Another aspect of publishing around the world is going into other languages, you know, translations. Tell me how that works, because that's interesting. So in the, in the new world, um, I wouldn't be going for a job as a translator because all these, all these programs now can just automatically translate it for you. And, of course, there's going to be problems with the pronouns and a little bit of you know, interpretation issues. But for the main part, you can read a book translated by a computer. Uh, you can read my book painted in Italian now because I used a company called uh, Babel Cube and they are a company that will do a like a profit split. So they'll translate your book for free and then they'll load it onto the platform. And, and are they doing that with a, with a computer? No, they're doing that with real people. They, oh, they doing are doing that, that with real people. That with people but I'm saying that if you are if you're wanting to turn into a translator in, in your future career, I just wouldn't bother because of all the artificial intelligence that's coming on board now. In fact, that'll probably painted will probably be the only com- only book I translate using Babelcube because what why would I give seventy percent of my profits to somebody else when a computer can do it for me? So let, let's talk about the profits. You you, you spoke about uh, fifteen postcards paying for your lunches, you describe yourself as a full-time author. Does that mean it's your job in that it takes up all your time or it's your job in that it pays for your, your lifestyle, your, your house, your family? No, my husband pays for my lifestyle, my house and my family. Uh, Painted is paying for my expenses. Mm-hmm. So Painted was independently published and so that's not through my publisher in the UK. Mm-hmm. So you get a much bigger slice of the I pie. I get a much bigger slice of the pie, and I am responsible for paying for all of my advertising on Amazon and all of my advertising on Facebook and, and everything else that I do. So, But Painted has done really well, and because I'm getting that higher profit margin by not giving away all of my money yep. to my publisher, yep. uh, I have, like even today I got my... Um, Ingram Spark royalties for the last month of paperbacks and for some reason people seem to like buying horror paperbacks so that's again I I haven't um, I used a program called Vellum which I paid for um, but I didn't need to pay anybody to format my book Mm -hmm. Vellum's this amazing piece of software that anybody can format you could format a book tomorrow if you Mm -hmm. wrote one overnight Mm -hmm. and just load it up what would it take do you think for this full-time job to become a, a full-time, you know, um, flow of money that would that would a- actually pay for your life. There's a, How um, successful do you actually have to be for this to there's a, turn the there's corner? There's a group on Facebook called 20 Books to 50K, and that's tw- they reckon you need to write 20 books to earn 50,000 US dollars a year. That's because and, and then they're ongoing. Yeah, well, it is ongoing. So my royalties from 15 postcards, you know, even at 99p and 99 cents, because there's so many hundreds and hundreds of downloads, mm. 
it just drips through. So every quarter I get pa- I get paid those royalties. Amazon pays me my royalties from for painted and and Kobo and Ingram Spark. I get paid monthly. And and 15 postcards came out in 2015. Last letter in 2016, painted in 2017. That money just rips through. Mm. So I can see how if you write 20 books, you can easily earn $50,000 a year. Especially in the online world. I mean, 10 year, 20 years ago, uh, a book would be in bookstores for a certain time. Oh, and very then, short And then time. it would not be in bookstores. Right. And that was the end, unless it was a runaway success. Yes. Nowadays, I guess, there's, there's no cost to you to having those books available for no. sale forever. That's right. And, and also, that's how it works. in the new world, like somebody pointed out to me that there were two errors in painted. Sorry, readers. Mm-hmm. Um, just typos. But I can go into uh, um, Vellum amend those two errors, takes me three minutes maybe, upload it straight to Amazon, takes Amazon about five minutes, ten minutes to approve those changes, and voila, no other reader will see those two errors ever again. Whereas if my book was only in print in the old school, those two errors are in that paperback copy Ah, forever. Forever, until and, a second edition is printed, which almost never happens in New, for New Zealand. That's right. And, in and, New Zealand. and people will come up to you on the street and say, you know what? Spitfires were not made <laughs> of <laughs> aluminium. <laughs> now, tell me, uh, the, the, the next book, when's it out? How can we buy it? Uh, the next book is my second horror, and that's called Dr. Perry. And um, you will be able to buy it next month online across all digital platforms. And in uh, Telegram Home will um, be out on November the 1st. Once you've actually written it. Once I've actually written it. I have at least written Dr. Perry. It's just an editing stage now. And you can find out more at uh, kirstenmckenzie.com. Hey, thanks so much for joining me tonight on Sunday Social. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Sunday Social with Vaughan Davis. Hey, welcome back to Sunday Social. And, uh, well, halfway through the show. And by my reckoning, that means it's probably about half a degree cooler than when we started. Not here though, it's still 19 degrees here in the heart of the News Hub. Oh yeah, and we just turned the fan on to move that cold air around our legs. Mmm, mmm, it's good. Hey, uh, that competition, that competition to win a signed copy of Kirsten McKenzie's horror novel, Painted. Remember, text 3920, keyword live. Give us your first name, give us your first name so we can uh, actually announce, uh, announce on air who won? That'd be cool. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back to the uh, the Sunday Social Chair for the first time this year, Mr. Julian Waters. How are you? Very well. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to you. And it's well, it's it's. When do you draw the line under that? When do you, I should ask Siri. Hey Siri, when is it too late to ask? Oh no, I can't. I've got an Android phone. This is probably. Oh, it's, it's got your phone going, hasn't it? Your phone, Julian, obeys my voice. How does yes. that make you feel? Digital emasculation. Digital emasculation. Hey, good night. Good night last night. That was great fun. Hashtag Vector Lights. Yeah. So at uh, Harbour Bridge, looking very sparkly. So Julie and I were lucky enough, lucky enough last night to be uh, out on the water, courtesy of uh, Vector, which is the uh, Auckland-based uh, energy company here, to have a look at the lighting up of the Harbour Bridge, which is actually, from a tech angle, quite a phenomenal project. So 90,000 LEDs, which is cool in itself, individually programmed to do pretty wacky and cool animations in time to music, but. Solar powered. I loved that bit. Yeah, it would be. It's perfect. That's just all perfect. We don't want to be paying for lights on the harbour bridge. You know, if it's going, oh, it's going to cost us money. But the whole thing, you know, it's sustainable. It's, it's all 
renewable energy. It's coming from the, the, the solar panels from the sun that's already, you know, beaming down on us and abundant supply at the moment. So, yeah, and it just looks fantastic. It does look pretty fantastic. So a bunch of solar panels on restaurants on uh, Auckland's North Wharf, uh, a whole lot of Tesla storage batteries nearby. So during the sun, they charge up the batteries. During the night, they light up the bridge, which is kind of cool. Like those, um, like those garden lights you used to get from the warehouse, except they work. <laughs> I guess I guess that's the key difference. The key difference is they actually work. Hey, I promised before the break we were going to talk about the sharing economy. And this is a bit of a, a buzzword in um, in that sort of inter- intersection of technology and uh, and culture and, and, and the economy. The idea that we no longer necessarily need to own the things we need, but we can we can share them with one another. Well, rent with one another and you've had a couple uh, of experiences in the last three months that bring that to life yeah i have yes i have and it's sort of gone the full gamut so in mid-december my longtime flatmates moved out and it was a bad time to immediately find new flatmates so i thought gee makes sense to put this room on airbnb uh, having no idea what the experience would be like. But uh, it was amazing. Absolutely loved it. The whole system, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's a very well-oiled machine. Uh, obviously, a lot of people use it to book accommodation. A lot of people list accommodation. Uh, so the way, it, you know, the way you've got people on that system that have been reviewed by other people already, they're not going to do anything to jeopardize good reviews. Um, not as neither am I, of course, because I want more people to book my my room. Much much like an Uber driver offering you a uh, a tasty snack or a bottle of water in exchange for a five star review. Well, exactly, and I've bribed plenty of people. Um, like for example, in my carport that I'd advertised was unavailable due to painting of the house. I gave her a couple of bottles of wine. I think she was real happy. That's that. I mean, hey, look, why not? You know, it's all so fair, so eh? so talk me through it. So I I, I rented a place um, to stay in uh, over Christmas uh, through Airbnb, and that that went very. Well, we've, we've spoken about that on air previously, but talk me through the process of being a homeowner or a home renter and listing your room and getting money for it and how all that works. Sure. So, so firstly, I haven't looked into the sort of the accounting and tax side of things, so I can't comment on what you're supposed to do in that regard. In, in my case, we covered the cost of the rent that we pay, so it, I think it's you know neutral anyway, but um, don't quote me on that side of things. But you, you, what you do is you take some photos of your room, you add some details like, you know, it's in a quiet neighbourhood or it's got a nice carport, it's, a, it's got its own bathroom, this sort of thing. Um, you know, fill out your profile, load these photos, put the location, and then you've got a calendar and you identify when you can make it available. Uh, because, you know, you may obviously, there could be a weekend that you make it unavailable or it could just be a set period of time that you've listed it. One thing that I was interested in, I was sort of thinking beforehand, gee, I wonder what the market rate is and I was looking at it. Well, Airbnb tells you what they think you should charge and you can actually switch on automatic pricing. So, so give, give, me, give me a ballpark. So um, for, a, for a, a room in a house in sort of fairly central Auckland, as a homeowner, what will I make a yes. night? So, so the room that we had, which had a queen-sized bed in it in its own ensuite, we started out, it, it was actually recommended I started at $32 a night, and I thought, oh, gee, no, that's a That's bit, not much, no, is it? No, that's not much. So I, I put it up to 48 I think, and then it was booked solid. But what I realized a little later on is that you can actually say, okay, it's 
50 something a night um, but if it's an extra person so if there's actually a couple staying you can add an extra say 20 bucks and then oh they, they get they, they nickel it it's like the airlines you, go nickel and dime, you, you yeah. get the base fare and then they add then all sorts of other things cleaning cost when people leave and so, that so sort of thing. let's say it's let's say it's 50 bucks uh how much of the 50 bucks do you get as the homeowner and how much does airbnb get how does that work i, I didn't notice the exact percentage but i was i think when i was charging 48 i was getting 45 dollars 50 ish or something like that it's only a few bucks the commission is, is very Low, oh, I that's think. huge! That's very good. I'm I'm tempted. I'm tempted to uh, to let out a room. Of course, it's not popular in all, all parts of the country. Well, it's popular with the people who do it. But uh, I noticed on the radio earlier in the week, the hotel association or the hospitality association, they're very unhappy about Airbnb in general because they they claim that well, quite rightly, that uh, people like you are not required to comply with the same you know safety and other regulatory standards as a hotel might. But, uh, you know, I think all the guests would know that. They'd know that yeah. there wasn't a fire extinguisher, a fire alarm and all the stuff you'd get in a, in a hotel. And the, the Queenstown Lakes District Council is getting a bit antsy as well because they're observing that, uh, you know, huge swathes of um, Queenstown real estate is now just being turned into Airbnb, you know, and, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's changing the character, changing the character of the town. I, I don't think... Certainly, I don't think I could make any money off it. To be to be frank, even living in a nice nice area, relatively close to the city here, it's it's, it's it was a rent covering exercise. I don't know. Perhaps if I had more positive reviews, it would have charged more. But um, I, I don't see it um, truly threatening threatening uh, the hotel industry. And and I would hate to do anyone out of a job. But the the first guest that I had uh, from Australia, he said to me, he he said I arrived late last night and I paid $180 to stay near the airport. It was an uncomfortable bed. I couldn't sleep. And the curtains were so thin, I woke up at 5 a.m. And then he said, I asked him the next morning, I said, oh, how did you sleep? He said, like a baby. For $48. So, for, yeah. so um, on the flip side, you've also been participating in the sharing economy as a renter, but a renter of a car. Tell me about that. Yeah, so that was a slightly different experience. So I, I have been renting cars longer term, but for various reasons. Which I don't is very modern, very modern of you. Yeah, it's not necessarily the perfect way to go about things, but it was working for a time, and then I didn't have this car, but I needed one for um, my daughter's tennis tournament for a week, and I thought, this is not going to work any other way. So, uh, and, and obviously all local car rental uh, outfits that I could think of would be charging peak season rates right mm -hmm. before Christmas. Mm -hmm. um, so I googled this whole concept, and I came up with yourdrive.co.nz. So there were a bunch of cars listed, and they're listed by location, so you can see, you know, this person lives around the corner from... Yeah, so to be clear, you're, you're not renting from a company, you're renting from people who own cars and are prepared to rent them out, just like Airbnb. So Oscar right. Ellison, the guy that founded Your Drive, we had him on the show hmm, probably a year ago, Inter interesting business, so tell, tell me how the process went. Yeah, so... One thing that I that's different, if you're on Airbnb, aside from the experience that you had, and we talked about this, where you, generally if you click book now, it's you're, there. You're it's booked. there. It's available. People don't generally say it's available if it's not. Um, but I, so I, you know, found a car that was close by. It was a, it was a press, and I thought, yes, this will work. Well, I could, you know, reserve this car, and nothing. Didn't hear anything. But I, I needed it sort of in a couple of days' time. I had left it quite late to organise. Or well, apparently that's late. Uh, so I can't, had to sort of cancel that. And then I, it, what I ended up doing was inquiring with about four of them and seeing who got back to me. And finally someone got back to me. Um, that was fine. Um, I think it wasn't super low cost. I mean, we just 
our example with Airbnb, it was less than a, like less than a third of the cost of professional, um, you know, going to a hotel. hotel. In, in this case, it was not a third of the cost of renting through a, a rental company. Um, it was, you know, I, I think I, I paid three hundred dollars for a car for a week. Um, well, that sounds okay. It was That's okay. Just, so, and so it was so, available, and so I was very say, grateful yep, for that. I'll, I'll, I'll have your car, Vaughan. I'll, I'll have it for three hundred dollars a week. So. You, you just come around to my place and get my car. Is that, is that yep. how it works? Yes, that's, that's right. So we, we exchanged some messages. The, the owner of the car was overseas and his flatmate or someone had the uh, keys to the car. So I, I was, it took me an hour or two and I was starting to panic because I hadn't sort of got good confirmation and were they available. And finally I got there and it was okay, got the keys. The car was not particularly clean, which wasn't great. I didn't want to be sitting in a messy car a week, so I went home and cleaned it first. Uh, I don't think the petrol tank was full and it's supposed to be, but I'd forgotten to check and that's kind of awkward. So little things like that weren't ideal. But, I mean, you know, and then I returned it and all that was fine. Um, so, so, you know, in summary, I, I guess, yeah, it would be great if your drive reached the, uh, I, I suppose, the popularity and the professionalism, professionalism of yeah, Airbnb. Because yeah. um, then you just have more confidence using it. You know, you want, you want to be able to think, you know, it's Sunday after, it's Friday night, hey, I wonder if I can get a car for the weekend. Because it makes, on the face well, of it, it makes really, really good sense. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember what the exact statistic is, but Oscar, you know, from your drive, he said, you know, on, on average, our, our cars are used 5% of the time. And it, it might be sure. something like that. 95% mm. of the time, we might as well not have our car. It's just sitting there, you know, depreciating, rusting, taking out the driveway. You might as well be making money from it. So on the face, it's a really good idea. Oh, and I think the bloke, I, I don't know exactly what their commission is, but the bloke who got 300 bucks when he was in another country with his car just sitting there. For doing nothing. I mean, that's a good deal. And that's once, a very good deal. And once again, um, the great thing about your drive is that it provides insurance. So there's peace of mind for everyone concerned in, in, that, in that regard. I think that was one of the biggest things they had to get over in the first place, yeah. So your drive, that's interesting. But then uh, if you don't want to ride a bike and you want to be a little bit more environmentally friendly, well, having seen the sustainable vector lights on the bridge last night, you might be in that frame of mind. You might want to rent a bicycle. Yeah, so I haven't tried this one myself, but, w but one of my Airbnb guests have, and I've... Um, seen, you know, had a few conversations about it. So these, these, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it looks like Onzo. I O N Z O. I think it. I think you would pronounce that Onzo. I don't yeah. know how else you'd pronounce it, Onzo. Yeah. So these black and yellow bikes have suddenly turned up everywhere across Auckland, sitting on. And, and, and this has literally turned up. So this this happened about uh, two months ago. We all woke up, and suddenly there were a thousand yellow and black bikes scattered across Auckland, weren't there? Yeah, and they're cheap as chips. I, I think you have to pay $10 or something to when you sign up to the app, but that's credit in advance. Yeah. It's 25 cents per quarter hour or half hour yeah. or something. So, so the, I haven't, I, I've, I've spoken to people who've used them. I haven't used them myself, partly because, you know, the routes don't really suit me. Um, but someone made the observation in a hilly city near Auckland, like Auckland, all these bikes are going to end up at the bottoms of hills. <laughs> so it's called dockless bike sharing. And you might have, if you've been to um, Paris or London or a lot of cities overseas, um, a lot of the cities have rental bikes. And the rental bikes are in docks. There'll be racks of them. And you, you know, put your credit card through a thing and the bike unlocks and you've got to take it back to another dock. This is dockless. And the way it works is you get the Onzo app. And I've got to say, the app looks really good, but the English is awful. And it's full of typos, which makes you wonder... I always, I always question uh, whether I should go, give my credit card to a, an app that's full of typos. Um, you get the app, fire it up, put in your, your $10 deposit, um, which is uh, refundable if you don't use it, put in your $10 deposit, and up on a map comes all the nearby bikes, because all the bikes are connected to the internet. 
all the bikes come up on the internet saying where they are. You go and find one, unlock it with your phone, and you do that by scanning a QR code, QR code on the bike. Yeah. There's a physical lock on the bike that unlocks, and then away you go. And the, the clock's on, and you, as you say, paying 25 cents per 15 minutes until you want to leave it somewhere, and you can just leave it anywhere. Yeah, while the uh, tennis was on here, I, I saw some outside my house, and then I also saw some outside the tennis. So I thought, Jesus, this could work. The bikes don't have gears, which would make it a bit difficult, I think. And they're too small for me. I'm they're not, tall, they're so. not the best bikes in the world, are they? They're not, they're not, they're not your chopper. They're not cho if no. they were choppers, I'd, I'd, I'd rent one. There's a classic yellow bike, the chopper. The, um, You're a bit young for the chopper. <laughs> the high, yeah. yeah, the chopper was the high handlebars. The, the, the use case that I had to had to laugh. Um, my last, one of my last Airbnb guests, young French man, of course. Um, his first app he downloaded was Tinder, and he woke up somewhere on a Saturday morning and pulled out the app, found the nearest bike, and cycled his way back home. Good. He, he didn't want to waste. You don't want to waste his money on. I, on I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about Tinder. It's, it's, I know it's, it's advertising yourself on 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 the internet as if you were a piece of secondhand furniture. Yeah, it's a sharing it's, sharing economy, isn't it? The sharing <laughs> economy, I suppose. Except no money change. Well, maybe money. I don't know. It just feels all a bit tawdry. To me. Maybe a better experiment properly with it and then let no, us know. Not, let, for, let me, not know. for me. Hey, I do have, so Onzo, Onzo is the name of those bikes. I, I, I will say in China, this dockless bike sharing thing is just going through the roof and a lot of the city governments hate it because there's all these bikes littering the streets and there are some famous photos online if you, uh, if you search them that um, show mountains, literally mountains of these bikes that have been scooped up into uh, enormous multicolored piles and are visible from space. Hey, I've got, we've got one time enough, we've got time enough for one app. And uh, because, because the weather's the way it is, it's gonna be a weather app, Authentic Weather. Have you used this one before? Julian, I haven't. I, I stick by the Met service, but is this yeah. one better? Well, the, the Met service is just an, a whole lot of ads with a bit of weather in between, isn't it? The New Zealand Met Service. All app. I'm worried about is accurate weather forecast. Yeah, well, 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 as accurate well, as this one. This one's called for. this one's called Authentic Weather, which is a bit like accurate weather, I suppose. Authentic Weather is a free app. It's available for Android, and it's also available for uh, iPhone, and. Its point of difference is it tells you what the weather is like the same way that you or I would tell what the weather was like. So it doesn't say partly cloudy with high temperatures towards afternoon and a chance of showers. It just says it's totally freaking hot and it's going to rain. And it just does it in absolute plain language. Icebergs all over your shit. It's like a flipping oven. It's great. Authentic weather. I absolutely love it. Hey, thank you so much, Julian, for coming in. Pleasure to be here. Always a pleasure to Before have you here. And my um, first half guest, Kirsten McKenzie, will be in touch with the winner of that signed copy of Painted. I'm back next week talking LinkedIn, which is very timely if you're looking for a new job. After the break, Mr. Graham Hill looking at me, looking at me expectantly through the glass. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah Dwyer, my TP. I'm Vaughan Davis. Radio Nighty Live. night.